We all know that prayer is critical as a spiritual discipline, but how is prayer also related to spiritual warfare on the mission field? Togolese people look at Westerners and think that we're so ignorant of the real world around us. And in many ways, they're right. You know, we look at them and think, oh, they're so backwards, but they're looking at us the very same way. We attribute natural causes to everything. But in the West African mind, they go a step further and say, if I can't see the cause, I need to look for the hidden cause behind it. So for instance, for them, if they get sick, They believe that they have angered one of the spirit gods who controls their health. They're very aware of the spiritual world. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, a word from ABWE president, Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE, joined again, as always, by Scott Dunford, West Coast Advancement Coordinator with ABWE, and Lead Church Planter for Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. Scott, we're coming up quick on 200 episodes, and I'm excited for the milestone that that's going to be. But one of the things that I enjoy most is not talking to the most famous famous people, the most well-known authors, some of the cool things that that we get to do. I also enjoy the fact that we get to highlight uh, some of the missionaries that are doing real front lines ministry. And sometimes they're ABWE missionaries, our parent organization. Other times they're not. Uh, but those stories of ordinary believers in the pre- in the trenches uh, doing what many of us don't always have the guts to be doing, yeah, that's what inspires me. And uh, I'm excited today, Scott, to talk about some stories of, of ministry in the trenches where it's most difficult, uh, but also learning lessons from that that I think we can all benefit from too in our own lives and our prayer lives. So we're excited to introduce you to missionary Dr. Tom Kendall. Tom, I I don't want to give a lot of background to you because I really want you to tell your story. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, your background, your ministry, and how you ended up on the mission field? Sure thing. It's good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. So I grew up in a a strong Bible-believing church where missions was always on the front foot. I remember those missions conferences, you know, every year with the flags and the interesting food and the stories. And I remember distinctly over the course of years of my elementary school age and uh, junior high and high school age, not I couldn't squirm out from under the fact that God's way is to send missionaries into the harvest field. And so my call into missions really was more of a looking around to my left and right and seeing, well, I don't see anyone else going. I know the harvest fields are quote unquote white and ready for harvest, but the laborers are few. So I'm just going to step up and be one of those as God opens the door. And so that was, that was sort of the general willingness of my heart, but my heart also had a lot of struggles. I was afraid of the inconveniences. I was afraid of the cultural changes. 
And so the Lord actually was gracious to our family and used a short-term missions trip. So that's my first plug is if you can, through your church, go on a short-term missions trip, it will change your worldview. And so that, that trip for me was instrumental in my life. It was the summer between, um, between my junior and senior year of high school. And our whole family went to the country of Togo in West Africa, where my dad served for two months as a doctor at the mission hospital where I actually currently serve now. That experience was a life-changing one for me. It broke down all those barriers, those fears, those obstacles that were in my heart. And I saw that missionaries actually weren't super people, newsflash. They were normal people just taking that next step of obedience and trying to serve the Lord and live their lives for His glory. And I thought, I want to do that. And so I decided then and there that I would pursue medicine as a ministry. So I went to undergrad uh, as a pre-med major, and the Lord opened the doors for acceptance into medical school, followed by general surgery training. Fast forward uh, many, many years later, I'm married uh, to wonderful wife, Melissa, and God has given us six children. And we've been on the mission field since 2014. Uh, you know, I grew up in church, similar uh, story to you. And the two things that you never want to ask yourself as a kid growing up in church are, am I called to be single? And am I called to go to Africa? Right. Those are like the two things you're never supposed to pray about. You're never supposed to think that right. or speak that into existence or anything like that. But hey, you're in Africa and you're in West Africa in a, a small, skinny little country called Togo that maybe not everyone has heard of. Um, it's pronounced Togo, not to go. Um, which is important to know. Yeah, those Togo sub shops everywhere. They have nothing to do with the country, but we have them. I see them all the time. I always, I always think about our teams in Togo when I see those sub shops. I can get my food Togo. Oh, thank you, Scott. What's your ministry like there? Yeah. So what's it like in Togo? Well, the best answer to that question is come and see. And I mean that very seriously. So anyone has the invitation to come and see what the ministries on the ground look like. It will surprise you. So not only do we have church planting works, which is actually the goal of all of our ministries, we have a Bible institute where pastors are trained. We have a nursing school where nurses are, are trained and educated to serve in our hospitals. The country of Togo actually has two full service mission hospitals, one in the south and one in the north. We also have a blind school um, and we have a literature and audiovisual ministry. And if in and, and, and all of those things also need support. So behind the, the spearheads, behind the focal points of all those ministries, you also have a support team. And so all that to say anything is is doable and anything is needed. Everything is needed uh, from maintenance to I.T. networking uh, to Bible training and uh, audiovisual ministry, you name it, as well as the medical professions uh, also. So, so help us understand a little bit more. I even want to understand more about like being a surgeon at a hospital, being a missionary. We know you're a preacher of the gospel. You don't, you're not just good with your hands that you, you, you love declaring God's word to people. Um, you know, what, what does a typical day in your ministry look like as a, a surgeon missionary? There is no such thing as a typical day because every day starts out with uh, interruptions. Um, but I'll try to give you sort of what a normal interrupted day might look like. Okay. So um, Togo is near the equator. It's about eight degrees north. And so there's not a lot of seasonal variation with the sunrise and the sunset. The sun gets up around 6 a.m. and sets around 6 p.m., give or take uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so. And so the whole society generally revolves around those daylight hours. And so you will see kids starting to walk to school around 5 6 in the morning. They'll, they'll walk for 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half to get to their school. 
Um, and then there's, and then they're farming. So where we are, it's a very rural area and it's mainly subsistence farming. And so daylight hours are very valuable. And so, um, typically the day runs from 6 AM, um, to 6 PM. My day actually starts around 5:45 or so when I get up and I'm at the hospital usually by seven where twice a week I do staff devotions with the operating room department with the surgical techs and anesthetist. And then once a week, um, uh, we have a hospital wide chapel, uh, to start the day at seven. And those are just, you know, short little devotionals, 15, 20 minutes, um, to, uh, hopefully edify, uh, the, the employee workforce there to get them thinking in biblical paradigms. And then the, and then the day's work starts. And so, um, the day's work looks like a busy clinic where we see hundreds of patients a day. Uh, we also have an operating room that's open, uh, 24 seven. We try to schedule cases, you know, two to three days a week. And then we fill the other times with urgent operations, um, that are needed. And so, uh, you get a, you get a real sense of the need because the need comes to you. And, uh, as I've read through the narratives of the gospels of Jesus life, um, the, the, the nature of the press around him, the pressing need of people clamoring for for healing, for help, or whatever, that has really come alive for me personally, as I realized, you know, I didn't, I read the Gospels in my sort of Western uh, paradigm, you know, with those uh, United States glasses on, and I didn't really understand what it meant to be crowded to where you couldn't even turn around without people touching you. Well, put yourself in a, in a different culture, and you'll know exactly what that was like. And so uh, uh, that's a little side note there. But then a typical day, one of the nice things about um, culture outside of the United States is the importance that they placed upon lunch. Uh, I never really knew what I was missing until I got to the uh, to the mission field. And you realize, wow, the world kind of stops between 12 and 2 in a lot of these cultures. And I get to go home for lunch. Uh, school gets out. And so the kids come home from school. And so we have lunch, lunch as a family uh, at least six days a week. And, and that's a, and that's a neat highlight. And then we go back in the afternoon uh, and, and continue working and then usually get home if I can for supper time. Sometimes it's a little bit later than that. And then obviously we're on call as a, as a, at, a, at the hospital. Um, so that's a typical work week. And then Sundays, the missionaries are usually splitting time between the medical missionaries are either on call at the hospital, taking care of acute uh, emergencies or we're involved in one of the local churches uh, around the hospital. And so uh, typically that um, uh, we, we try to split up and, and divide uh, the missionary workforce so that, you know, three or four missionary families don't descend upon one local church um, and, uh, and disrupt the, the, uh, the flow too much. But we try to get involved in, is in however we can, whether that's uh, singing or teaching or preaching, or just encouraging and sharing a, a testimony, um, and then giving the pastors and their families counsel um, as they're open to it. Um, and so that that really is the heart and soul of why we're there. So medicine for all of us is a means to an end. Uh, not only uh, are we doing uh, good work in Jesus' name because we love people, more importantly, we love God and we want to demonstrate His love. And that open door then gives to us um, the opportunity to present the gospel to people who really otherwise wouldn't listen to us, right? Because, you know, when you're sick, that's when you go to the doctor. Jesus said that himself. And when people are brought face to face with their own mortality, 
God uses that very fact as an open door to make many hearts uh, open to the gospel who might otherwise be hard-hearted. And so that's a typical um, window into what we do and also why we do it. So you get a lot of accusations of being lazy then. Oh, my. I'm just kidding. Oh, I've yet to meet a missionary doctor who's been called lazy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so thankful for your work. Thank you. That's yeah. incredible. I, I want to talk a little bit about Togo because that's going to set up, you know, I think the main thrust of our, our discussion here today um, and bring some of these ideas, you know, behind a certain backdrop. So from, from my understanding of Togo and in, in looking at, at spiritism around the world, Togo was really the birthplace of voodoo and a lot of these uh, spiritual practices that have kind of made their way into the West as well. Can you tell us a little bit about Togo, the spiritual uh, life in Togo, um, what, what's their tradition, and how is that still taking place today? Sure thing. Uh, probably the best way to get the point across is to say that Togolese people look at Westerners and think we're stupid. They think that we're so ignorant of the real world around us. And I, I start out that way because in many ways, they're right. You know, we look at them and think, oh, they're so backwards. You know, they don't have technology. They don't, they don't have a right outlook on, on what's important about things uh, and so on and so forth. But they're looking at us the very same way. Uh, to give you an instance, um, we attribute natural causes to everything out of habit, out of nature. In fact, if you look at the weather, they don't talk about God. They talk about mother nature, um, uh, basically saying these are, these are things that just happen. Um, and so why did the tree fall? Well, the wind blew. They don't even, they don't go farther than that. They just, it's sort of a closed door or an earthquake came or something like that. But in the West, West African mind, everything has a cause. And we think the same way, but they go a step further and say, if I can't see the cause, or even if I can see it, I need to look for the hidden cause behind it. So for instance, for them, if they get sick, they believe that they have angered one of the spirit gods who controls their health or um, an ancestor, or you name it. Uh, they're very aware of the spiritual world, and, uh, spiritual world. And in that sense, uh, we've, we've been able to learn a lot from them. Um, I don't think um, they have the right perspective in that their, their attitude is one of fear, and they don't look to a God, a supreme God, as maker and controller and sovereign ruler over all things. They see sort of a, uh, a pantheistic you know, a panorama of gods that have their, uh, their realms. You know? and, and that's very similar to what we read in the Old Testament. You have your fertility gods. Uh, you have your uh, agricultural gods, you have your weather gods, you know, all, all of those things that they would try to appease those different uh, pagan tribes. And that is something that we see as well. And so there is a lot of fetishism, uh, witchcraft uh, that goes on. And that's a hard thing even for the Christians to let go of. And in fact, that's probably one of the, the best indicators that Christianity has really taken hold of a person and they've become a true child of God is what they're, when they're able to let that, that cultural crutch, that reality that they know, they're able to let, let that go because they truly understood that Jesus is the way, the exclusive way, the truth and the life. Because what we do find is people are in the church, but it's, it's something that they do as well as hang on to their, their cultural paradigms. And so that's one of the, the burdens of the missionary team is to teach and disciple these believers out of that completely. Mm. 
we've talked about some of those themes on the show before and related to ABWE's Togo team before. It's part of why we wanted to get you on the show. You recently shared with ABWE's staff about the role of prayer as warfare, as engaging in spiritual warfare. I think you're right. We're naturalists in the West. We need our eyes opened. Um, We can't see a demon under every rock, um, but there are demons uh, under some of the rocks out there in the world. And being in a context like yours, you're certainly uh, increasingly aware of that. And so when it comes to how the believer confronts these things, there's two extremes. You know, one is naturalism. And we know that we, we can't operate as materialists, assuming that everything is purely on this physical causal plane. At the same time, we can't become so obsessed with the supernatural that we ourselves um, are, are operating in a, in a state of fear, right? And, and casting demons out of everything that moves, of course. And so you would say that prayer is central to the way that we engage that fight. And, and you know, as I ask that too, we've sort of trained ourselves not to think of the Christian life in those fighting terms. Uh, missions itself used to have a lot more of that martial terminology, and we've sort of cleaned it up, um, maybe because of the imperial baggage that that had. But, you know, we still have, you know, we don't just recruit, we mobilize, right? Those are military terms. And that could be confusing for, for somebody outside of, of our circles and our subculture to know what we mean by that. We're referring to, you know, the spiritual war of, of good and evil and kingdom of light, the kingdom of, of darkness. Uh, but missions itself is engaging in war in a sense. So where does prayer fit into all of that? You know, you said something very poignant there when you said, you know, there's not a demon under every rock, but there are demons under some rocks. And we have a naturalistic worldview and that's opposite a spiritualistic worldview. And so I, the point of talking about prayer is, is that we would turn the dial a little bit uh, in our thinking so that we, we would have biblical paradigms here because prayer is not or should not be a merely habitual ritual that we do, uh, but rather it, it, it should become a tactical exercise. And, and the reason why this is so important to me is because I, I, I need it. Uh, I was on the mission field in an environment that would swallow me up. And I'm not saying, uh, therefore, that this is for them so much as it is for me. Uh, I had a lot to learn. And so I'm excited to, to talk about this a little bit because I think the Western church has a lot to learn as well. Um, God made us physical and spiritual beings, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and we can't really plumb the depths of the wonder of the creatures that we really are. We must stop and just give God glory for that. And so we do have this physical component uh, where there are natural causes for things. But likewise, because we're spiritual beings and we feel things and, and things impress us and they actually, they actually impact our very identity, we have to open our minds and our hearts to the idea that there are spiritual causes as well. And some of that might be just direct spiritual warfare. And so uh, that's why, um, that's why I, I shared a little bit about what I had learned and actually put into practice because you know, if we're not fighting a spiritual battle in our lives, if we're not fighting a conscious spirit, a conscious spiritual battle against our flesh, then we're losing. 
Because when we read the New Testament, the, the, the language of warfare is there. We battle our flesh. We battle the world system. We battle the enemy of our souls, the devil. And, and God has given us the actual means by which to do all that. It's not that we're left alone. And it's also, in fact, not that we're strong in and of ourselves. And so I started in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a, you know, the well-known passage on the armor of God. And it starts out chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so we as Christians, whenever we have exploits and whenever I do a good thing, whenever you do a good thing or God accomplishes something, that's really what's going on. It's God's power at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we have to start with the fact that all of this is God's doing, but then we also have things to do ourselves and that's to put on that spiritual armor. And we know that passage, but that passage ends with verse 18, which then says, praying always at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so I'm, I, I'm telling me this as I share this with you because I need it. And so uh, I want this to come across as something that that we all need to learn and grow in. This is not a lecture from a from a seasoned veteran here, uh, but you know the Apostle Peter he wrote us. He said in order to stir up by way of reminder to put these things in our minds again, so that today or maybe tomorrow we'll be just a little bit more prepared to fight the battles uh, that we're facing in this life. And so um, I, I do want to say, you know, prayer is is much more than than warfare so you know the take-home point prayer is warfare it's much more than that and we all know that in prayer you know we worship we praise and we exalt our creator and redeemer it's also confession um so in saying that it's warfare we're not saying that that's all that it is but among those other things and especially with intercessory prayer um prayer is one of the most tactically strategic things we can do as Christians, as believers in this pilgrimage that we call our lives. And so um, this admonition in verse 18 of Ephesians 6 says, praying at all times and keeping alert. That's, that, that's, the, that's, that's warfare language. That's a soldier language of, of, of being on guard and making sure that we are actively aware and that we're prepared for things. And so it's not a stretch at all to consider prayer as a warfare tactic. Um, you know, John Piper had that famous quotation, which I love. He said, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comfort of the saints. And, and that makes me smile. It's so true, but you know, I, I mentioned that I grew up in a, a strong Christian home, and I'm so thankful for that, for my godly heritage and for the strong Bible-believing church that I was in. But I distinctly remember, maybe you do too, when you're five years old and you're in your Sunday school class and it's Prairie Quest time, I remember trying my best to think up a good story. You know, I wanted to be, I, I wanted the stage, right? I wanted to engage in the storytelling drama uh, so that I could, I could, you know, enjoy the spotlight for a second. And now I don't fault my teachers for that, but at some point I had to move on and all of us have to move on, right? From, from prayer as being sort of a spiritual show and tell to actually see prairie quest sharing and intercessory prayer as a tactical exercise in spiritual warfare. Mm. And so here's where this came alive. Uh, we're on the mission field and I quickly came to the end of my rope. Mm -hmm. I was tired. I was exhausted. Yeah. There are team dynamic issues. I mean, it, it's just life, right? 
And I realized that that I was self-sufficient and I'd quickly come up against my limits. And I, I say this somewhat tongue in, tongue in cheek, but, um, you know, there's sort of three strikes against people like me. Uh, first of all, I'm American. And, you know, we Americans, we, we go out and we get it done, right? Yeah. You know, if we see a, if we see a wall, we, cl- we climb it and we figure out uh, with our ingenuity how we're going to make it happen. The second strike against me is that I'm a male and, you know, we're sort of wired to, to accomplish the task. We're wired to tackle the obstacles and to provide and to overcome. That's just in our nature. It's the way God made us. But the third strike against me is that I'm a medical professional, specifically a general surgeon. And uh, it's often said of us that, you know, we're often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> and, um, and so we're, 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 we're trained to take care of problems. We're, we're, we're trained to say, okay, I've got a life-threatening problem here that I need to enter into and, and divert the flow here and actually change the outcome. And so all of that kind of comes into your mind as I need to. Hey, if be you're going to be wrong, you know, I need to if be, you're gonna be wrong, be wrong with confidence. I'm a firm believer in that. There you go. There you go. And so all of that though quickly brought me uh, to the end of my rope. And I realized, okay, I, I need something else. I need, I need God's strength here. Uh, the proverb says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And I realized in my own strength, I am weak. I am nothing. And so that's where verse 10 of Ephesians 6 comes back in. Be strong in the Lord. So we have to use these means of grace available to us, this armor of God. And I'm not going into all that, because uh, although we could, but we come back to now that the armor is on, now that we've told, reminded ourselves of all these truths about who we are and who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we must pray to fight this battle. And so um, how is prayer, you know, tactically strategic then? Because uh, we can talk about prayer, but uh, we need to go a little bit further and, and actually discuss, I think, what is it? What is it that, that makes prayer so tactically strategic? Let's, let's dive into that. Um, that's a great introduction. And there's a lot we could get into there. But I, I want to hear what makes it so tactical. And, and you even brought out that that Piper quote, right? It's a it's a wartime strategy. So I think we need to retrain our minds about this, especially uh, for the missionaries that are listening. We'll do that with Tom Kendall in just a moment after this quick break. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. And this June, attend the National Conference. Go to abuseprevention.org and register with ABWE21 as the promo code to receive 20% off your ticket. That's promo code ABWE21 to receive 20% off. 
Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached. And there are other peoples still more hidden, and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached, and they take more cross-cultural effort. Is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture? and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there so that there can be a long years and even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org. back on the missions podcast talking with our friend dr tom kendall uh who is a is a chief of surgery is that correct chief of surgery at uh, the yes. hospital baptiste uh-huh. biblique in southern togo uh in chico togo am i getting Very this good. right yes. all right I, I feel i feel i feel good um i better stop now while i'm ahead Yes, sir. I think you should say Tom Kendall, MD. That sounds like a TV show. It does. It does. Whatever you, whatever you do, just don't say Doctor Tom Kendall, MD. That's a little pretentious. That's true. Yeah, that's it's one much. or the that other. Crosses right. the line. Yeah. It's, you don't do. You don't do two doctors there. Yeah. Right. That's great. We need to get Brooks Buser from RadiusInternational.org to say that. That it'll sound perfect. Doctor <laughs> Tom Kendall. MD <laughs> Brooks, if you're listening, we're we're sorry, okay, we're sorry. Um, but moving along now, uh, we're we're talking about prayer in missions, dependence on God, and recognizing that certain contexts more than others can be very intense hotbeds of spiritual warfare of the overt Book of Acts kind. And Tom, you've uh, probably seen that, or at least uh, interacted with that and those ideas from afar. Uh, but you would also say prayer is a tactical thing. It's a wartime device. So help us unpack that practically. Okay, we know we should pray more, but what else? Yes, sir. Thanks, Alex. Um, so at prayer, at least intercessory prayer, as we're considering it here, um, I boil it down this way. It's essentially telling God what he already knows and aligning our hearts, our concerns, our anxieties up to his will and leaving them in his keeping and in his will. For instance, uh, think about uh, think about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is this is the the, the, the classic example. You can, you can't get um, a more clear picture. This is the epitome of what's going on. Here we have the Son of God as a man in perfect relation with his father. All right. He's lived a life of righteousness. It's a righteousness that he graciously gives to us. We don't merit it ourselves. It is the basis of our justification. And to accomplish that, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And in the garden of Gethsemane, as a man, he prays to his father and says, is there any other way that we can do this? I don't want to go to the cross is basically what he's saying. But he doesn't stop there, though. He says, not my will, but thine be done. And so the battle that he was doing was a spiritual battle, not only between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, not only between uh, God, the Father, as the righteous and just one dealing with sin, but also the, the struggle 
and the intense warfare going on in his own heart. He did not want, in, as a man, he did not want to go to the cross. He said, is there any other way that, that we could do this? But he quickly followed that up by saying, not my will, but thine be done. And so that's where I get the idea that we take uh, we take our, our requests, our petitions, and we actually tell God, and God already knows this. Our Father, our omniscient, loving, heavenly Father, our shepherd, our redeemer, he knows this already. And so we're not telling him anything we don't know. But then we, we submit and we bow before him and we align our wills and our, our, our hearts before him. We share with him the concerns and anxieties that he already knows. And we, and we stop and we consider what God is doing. And so Jesus is the classic example for us. And, you know, that's all well and good, but then we have to live life. And so how does that apply to my daily life? Well, recently, one of my very uh, closest childhood friends, in fact, he was my next door neighbor growing up, uh, lost his father uh, during this COVID pandemic. And uh, there was a closest uh, there because he was next door neighbor where the situation, you know, hits home. And we prayed for him. We prayed every night for him. Our kids prayed for him, and and uh, his his home church was praying for him, and thousands of people were praying for him. We pled to God that God would heal him and deliver him and restore his health, and God answered our prayer by taking him home to heaven, and we lost our friend and neighbor. So the prayer was answered with a loving no, but if we fail to see that a sovereign God is working, and if we fail in obedience— uh, to accept his working and his providence, um, we will fail to see that our prayer is answered. And, and what are we going to do then? We're ultimately going to give up because prayer then just becomes a, a ritual uh, to increase our comforts or, or, or can I put it this way, to get what we want. And many times our own prayers are forms of idolatry. God, I can't do this for me. Will you do this for me? Um, and, and, and we, and we don't align our mm-hmm. will to God's. I want what I want and I want you to give it to me. Now yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap that up by basically saying, um, it's very instructive if we look at the prayers of the Bible and the parallel passage to Ephesians six is Colossians chapter four. And, uh, I want to read you, uh, the way Paul puts his prayer request to them, because it, I, I hope that the irony, uh, comes across We can't fail to see this. Um, Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. On account of which I am in prison. So Paul is saying, pray for us that the door would be open. Not that we would get out of prison, but that the word would go forth. So Paul's perspective here was the will of God for his life. And that's where prayer can be so freeing for us. And it can be so faith building and so edifying is when we align our wills to God's by praying the prayers of scripture. And we know that it's God's will that the gospel would go forth in power. That's what he sent his spirit to accomplish through his church. And so the, the practical challenge then is to wrap all that up and say, okay, we want uh, to turn the dial a little bit in our thinking, to get away from prayer, thinking of it as just a habitual ritual, but thinking of it as a tactical exercise. And many times, at least for me, the battle is most pitched in my own heart. 
And in a, as an act of worship and as an act of intercession, I, I then come to God and lay all my concerns before him. I lay all of my fears. I actually lay all of my weaknesses before him, of which he already knows, right? He knows all of this. And we say, God, work out your will in me. Help me to trust you more. I'd love for my friend to be healed, but not my will, but your be done. And I'll trust you. You're omniscient and you're also all loving. I know that you're accomplishing your purposes in this world. Please do that through me. Please strengthen me with might according to your spirit in my inner man. So if we start praying these biblical prayers, and and I I guess if there's any listener who wants to know, okay, how do I do this? We'll just go to the prayers in scripture. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3 are good places to start. And see if your prayer life, if you have one, uh, because many times I realize that my prayer life is a pitiful excuse of one, right? I pray for uh, my need to feel better, or I pray for so-and-so to sleep well, or I pray, you know, all, all these types, of things, which are good. I'm not minimizing. God cares about all these, these little details too, but we need to be aligning our own wills with God's will. And so see how your prayer matches up with the prayers that Paul prays for his people, for the church, for you and for me. And, uh, and you will find that your heart um, uh, your heartbeat slows down and you become a little less anxious as you see what God is doing mm. and you trust his timing and, and, and his ways. So Tom, I can imagine that someone's listening, could be listening to this and, and maybe subconsciously, that's not the right word, but in the back of their mind is saying, yeah, that makes sense. And if I was going to go to Togo, I would need to pray too, you know, or I can remember sitting and listening to missionary stories and, you know, and this this missionary from Haiti is telling these stories that just make my skin crawl and going like, oh yeah, like you need to you need to pray, buddy. <laughs> but then but then going like, so good good for you, Tom. I'm glad you're praying. You need it. Uh, that's a tough place you're at. But then they go about their business in which life's pretty normal and pretty easy and ministry's pretty you know like well you know I, I got to pray, but I really probably should do sermon prep right now you know or and things like that. What what would you say to the fat happy pastor, um, you know, or the or the uh, missions podcast uh, ho- co-host who's sitting here listening, you know, from the comfort of California and going like, "Buddy, you need to pray too." What would you say to us? Oh, that's a that's a very good question, and the answer is a little bit painful. But we as doctors sometimes we have to lay the scalpel right uh, in order to bring healing. And the answer to that question is to consider if your worldview or, uh, or my worldview is actually a little bit more egocentric than I realize. Am I thinking about me? Am I thinking about what I need to be doing? And am I thinking about who, uh, the ministry that I need to have? Or I need to be thinking about what God is doing in me and then therefore through me. Um, if I think that I am the answer to anybody's problems, then I am an enemy of the Lord in that moment. I am committing idolatry, just like the wicked one when he set himself up against the Most High. I am not the answer. Christ is the answer. Now, God uses pastors. God uses next-door neighbors. God uses wives and families. He uses us to accomplish his kingdom work, right? But if we ever think that it depends upon us, Uh, then we need to dial our thinking back a little bit to realize, no, it doesn't depend upon me. It's through me and by me, but it depends upon God. Now, that's probably the the theoretical answer. Let me give you the practical answer here. Let's say that you're busy, you're a busy pastor, or you're a busy uh, doctor, or you're a busy housewife. 
you know, and you're, and you're working and all it's barely all you can do to keep your head above water. And all of a sudden your toilets back up and you realize that you've got a problem. Kids can't flush the toilets anymore. And you think, okay, I got to get this fixed. So you try the plump plunger, the plunger doesn't work. And you realize, okay, I'm going to probably have to pump the septic tank or, you know, septic is your deal. And, and before you've realized that you've gone into, okay, I need to fix this. I need to solve this. I need to do this. And, and your heart is my heart anyway, is anxious. And I can tell you this illustration because this happened to us just last week. And so I, I had to stop. And this is grace. This is the Holy Spirit. This is not me being spiritual. This is God working in me to say, now, wait a minute. What's the bigger picture going on here? Is it really just the sewer system that's the problem? Or do you need to learn a lesson? Do your children need to learn a lesson on how you deal with uh, problems that arise? If you have no margin in your life and, you, and you've got to be somewhere at 11 o'clock and you've got 10 minutes to get there and only nine minutes to go, do you just speed up and make it happen? Or do, you, or do you say, okay, kids, I am faced with an insurmountable obstacle right now. I want you to watch daddy or I want you to watch mommy. Um, that is impossible to do, Scott without an attitude of reliance upon the Lord in prayer. And I've been there and I, and I've had to stop and say, okay, Tom, you're a missionary, you know, you're a pastor, you say you love the Lord, but you're not acting like it right now. Um, how are you dealing with the guy who's coming to pump out your tank? Did, tank? did you ever think that he might need the gospel today? Or are you just trying to figure out how you can mitigate your losses and, and, and save as much, you know, you know how our brains tend to think. And so what we have to do is be immersed in scripture and realize that it's all about God and not about us. His purposes are, are what are being accomplished. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter three actually goes in a little bit. His, his own testimony says, listen, God, my whole purpose in life is to be light to the Gentiles. And then he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be on display to the principalities and powers, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So there's a big drama going on. And we're not center stage. God is center stage. And he's showing to the audience, which happens to be angels and demons and people, you know, who, whose souls are no longer here on this earth. They're the ones watching this whole drama and they're watching the manifold wisdom of God on display through the church. That's the perspective that we need to have. So when peanut butter spills on the counter and jelly falls on the floor and toilets back up, we need to stop and realize, OK, what is God trying to tell me? Mm -hmm. And we need to be ready for that answer to come. Oh, amen to that. You know, there's another angle from which to approach this too, which is that prayer is in a sense an inescapable concept. It's not whether or not you're praying, but it's how you're praying and to whom you're praying. And so, you know, the, the other way to, to, to think of this is that well, you're always praying to something right? It, you're, you're either taking your burdens, your, your burdens, your, your grievances, your requests, your supplications, you're either taking it to social media, you're taking it out on your kids, right? You're, you're taking it to people who can't help or you're, you're turning for comfort and for relief and for uh, fellowship to a bottle or to something that is, is getting you some sort of relief uh, instead of turning to the Lord with those things. And so re really, I think it's also a matter of, of pre -pro uh, reprogramming ourselves, excuse me, reprogramming ourselves uh, away from those false comforts. I think of Psalm 16, where, you know, David says, 
that he has no good apart from the Lord. And as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But then he focuses on the wicked, those who try to find satisfaction in this world. And he says that uh, that he will not pour out their drink offerings of blood or even take their names on his lips. The sorrows of those, he says, who run after another God shall multiply. And so it's also recognizing that, it, you know, it's not prayer or nothing. It's it's prayer to God who can help or it's turning in a futile way to something else. And I'm, I'm sure you've learned that in your own life, in your ministry. I don't know if you care to comment on that, but I also want to hear more about just what's happening in Togo and how people can learn more about your ministry there. Sure. Well, you made a very good point about that. We're always praying to something or someone. It's like the, the old adage, everyone is worshiping something and we don't really, right. we don't realize it overtly all the time, but we are serving something. Um, and, uh, much better than that. We serve, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, our redeemer, uh, and also pray to God, our father through the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, Philippians chapter four, um, it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and, and the peace of God, which passes, surpasses all understanding will keep or guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, and in my experience, I've had pockets of that. I don't live there. I wish I did live there. Um, I, I, but I know that every time that I've in, in the spirits, um, enabling turned to God and left things at his feet and said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. The relief that comes is palpable. And I, and I, and I'm amazed at how often I turn to other sources, whether, whether it be like you said, social media or a friend through texting or, or something like that, rather than just going to God with it. Uh, and that's where this needs to become intentional um, as a tactical exercise. There are so many um, uh, ideas wrapped up in that. It's something that you actually have to do on purpose. Um, you have to plan and you have to execute. You have to overcome obstacles to do it. And I think we could all do with a little bit more discipline uh, in that regard. And I'll tell you how that and segueing into your next question uh, that came uh, in in a stark relief to me uh, while we're on the mission field. Uh, realizing that we as a team uh, were a bunch of, um, uh, they would laugh if they heard me say this, we're a bunch of misfits. You know, we're the, we're, we're weak, we're foolish people that God uses, he is pleased to use to do his kingdom work, right? And so God brings this little ragtag band together. If you look around to your left and right at us, you'd think, who are these people? And what are they trying to do? This is, this is kind of crazy. And in the world's eyes, it is. But what we realized was that our strength wasn't in our own abilities. Uh, if we had any strength at all, it was because of the Lord's empowering. And we needed to seek that and entreat the Lord for that. So when we came to prayer, um, uh, what we tried to do is establish a culture that when the mission team came to prayer, that it was an hour of doing battle. That was kind of a, a phrase of doing battle. We prayed for unity. Because I tell you, there's nothing like disunity that can fracture a team on the mission field. You know, if you're in a, on a pastoral staff, if you get something that you start disagreeing about, uh, you've got a big battle on your hands. Families experience this all the time with where you, what do you want to eat for supper? You know, and there and there's all these differing opinions. Well, it's the same thing on the mission field. But one of the prayers uh, of Scripture 
And one of the things that we're to strive for is to, to keep zealously the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so we got together and we prayed for needs. You know, we prayed for a loved one back in the States who has cancer. You know, we prayed for someone who's getting ready to have surgery. We did all those prayers that, you know, I, I used the term earlier, spiritual show and tell. And I, I, don't, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean it in a descriptive way that many times we, we, we can just tell stories. And yes, we pray to God about them. But rather than pray for healing, we can pray for healing according to God's will. And so it just it sort of turns the dial a little bit. But then coming back to on the field, you know, the, we were threatened almost weekly by disunity, whether it was miscommunication or strongly held opinions about a course of action that we needed to take. And what we had to do was fight for each other, not with each other. And so we committed to doing battle for each other and with each other in prayer. And when you're praying for one another, it's just that much harder to get angry with them it because is. you're praying for their well-being. You're praying for their growth. You're praying for their edification. And you want to be a means to help accomplish that. And so you start to love them a little bit more with that Christ-like love rather than you know our human perspective on things. And so those weekly prayer times that we had, you know, it was always a battle to go to. You know, you had a crying kid or you missed supper or whatever the case may be, but there never was a prayer meeting that I regretted going to. Mm. Uh, when you went with the attitude of, okay, we've got to do battle because we don't have strength for what's coming at us tomorrow. Uh, we need wisdom. That was another prayer. So unity, peace, wisdom, those kind of things that, uh, that we had to actively pray for because God doesn't give us all the answers about the future. And so what we have to do is we have to walk in love. We have to seek uh, the better, the betterment of others. We have to do what is, is kind and edifying to the believers and ultimately for the glory of Christ. And so that is probably the, the, the best practical example that I could give you of how, of how we experience this on the mission field. And I'll tell you, um, I think the best beneficiary of my missionary service so far has been me and what God has done for me through his word. Mm. Well, you're doing a lot in Togo. Of course, you're a part of a huge team there. Uh, those who are familiar with the ministry of ABWE might be recipients of our message magazine would have just received an issue in the mail uh, just a few weeks ago focused on what's happening in the south of the country there. And so real briefly for us as we wrap up, can you explain to me just a, a little bit about the hospital? And also you guys are working on a pretty uh, revolutionary rebuilding project as well that's about four decades in the making. Yeah, so where we are in southern Togo is about three hours north of the capital city uh, at HBB. It's a lot easier to say than L'Hôpital Baptiste Biblique, but you did a good job earlier with that, Thank Alex. you very much. Uh, thumbs up to you, yeah. Uh, so that hospital ministry was started as sort of the brainchild and answer to prayer of the pioneer missionaries, Dal and Kay Washer, who were just swamped. They were inundated with sick and suffering people. And so they prayed that God would help establish a clinic and hospital to meet some of these needs so that the gospel could be presented. So the hospital started in 1985 as a means to that very end. And so every single patient that comes, even today, hears the gospel. Every single patient every day hears the gospel. In the clinic, all the people in the waiting room hear an evangelistic sermon. Uh, preached every day. And in the hospital, you know how doctors and nurses make rounds and write in the charts. Well, we have chaplains who do the very same thing. They go around, they make personal visits, and they write in the charts too, uh, the spiritual condition and the conversations that they've had with the patients. The whole point of that 
is to use medicine and the delivery of healthcare as a means to meet people at their point of need so that we can then present the saving news of Jesus Christ to them. And so out of that, our goal is that the church will be planted in Southern Togo. And the hospital has actually been involved in over 40 church plants that have some sort of link with the hospital in the 35 years of existence. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. 35 years of existence and over 40 churches. That's more than one church a year. Yeah. Now, a lot of that was in the very early stages where the gospel wasn't there at all. And so now it's moved into sort of the discipleship and maturing phase where you're training up national leaders. And so what we want to do is do the sort of the same thing with the hospital itself. So if you can imagine a 35 year old house that has not been updated, uh, it definitely it's in, it's in uh, dire need of some upgrades and some expansions uh, to sewer and to some of our other capabilities with lab and x-ray and things like that. And so our vision project has an idea that we, it's been the firm conviction of the team that the work of, uh, missions in Southern Togo is not yet finished. You know, Jesus said in the Great Commission, teaching them to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And the last of the all things that he's commanded us was to go and make disciples. And so when the church then reproduces itself, and when the churches that you have planted have begun sending their own missionaries, then you can say that the Great Commission has been accomplished there. And so we want to see the hospital take that next step in not only supporting the local churches in the area and strengthening them with discipleship, it's also a job, job source in the region, but to see these churches grow into maturity and, and become sending organizations themselves. And so HBB can uh, be a part of that with training up nurses, with potentially training up doctors in the future uh, as the Lord provides. And so we want to uh, we want to be ready for that. And so as the Lord provides uh, these opportunities for us, we want to be we want to be there and we want to be ready. And so the hospital ex, um, uh, out, uh, expansion and updating has a lot to do with that. So we need to we need to expand certain of the infrastructure capabilities, you know, the things that aren't glamorous on the surface, but that have to be done, right. uh, you know, new pipes and stuff like that. And so that's a big part of these early phases. And uh, it's, a, it's a five phase process that, it, you know, if we accomplish one phase and that's what the Lord wants us to do, we'll be glad. But if we get through all five phases over the course of the next decade or so, then we'll say to God be the glory, great things he has done. Mm. The whole purpose, though is so that we will finish the mission that God has given us there. That's right. And uh, how cool to see African medical doctors being sent from Togo throughout the rest of the continent and into some places where American missionaries may not be able to as easily have an impact and go. And so, Tom, so grateful for what you shared today. We'll include links to learn more about HBB and the Vigent Project there and your own ministry, Tom. And so we thank you for listening today. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, ask us a question. Give us a suggestion for anything you think that we should cover by emailing alexadmissionspodcast.com. Please share this episode with a friend and leave us a positive rating and a five-star review in your podcast app of choice. Until next week, thank you for listening.